before I started training with Yana, I was uh, being like 11th in corner. I just came third at the African Championships behind Ben Hoffman. The training, I'd, it was also almost as if the training, I would just train and train and train until I saw my body sort of got too tired to where I just had to take days off. And then I'd just get back on the wagon and train, train, train again until my body just said no more. Just, yeah, and I suppose that was it. Fundamentally, it was just a lack of confidence. That's David McNamee, and you're listening to the Oxygen Addict Triathlon Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Oxygen Addict Triathlon Podcast. We're brought to you every week by our sponsors, PrecisionHydration.com. Electrolytes in different strengths that match how you sweat. You can get 15% off your first order with the code OxygenAddict15. And we're also brought to you by TRRNutrition.com. TRR Pro Advanced Collagen helps support your joints and bones and is used by Ironman champions Craig Alexander, Tim Don, and Sarah Svensk. You can get 15% off with the code OxygenAddict15. All right, everybody, welcome to the show. I hope you're all good. This week's interview is with none other than two-time Kona podium winner David McNamee from Scotland. Cracking interview with him. As a lot of you will know from having followed him on social media, he spent an awful lot of time in lockdown training on his balcony in Girona on his turbo trainer. He had a treadmill for a while that broke after not very much use. It's an amazing story of somebody trying to stay fit and trying to trying to stay on top of the fitness in an incredibly challenging time. So look forward to that later on. We also get a pretty good overview of his whole career, really, and get a feel for where he's going for the rest of the season. So, yeah, stick around and check that out later on. Right, first up, though, we have news and results. Well, we've got news. We haven't got any results, obviously, because there's no racing happening at the moment. News is brought to us by our sponsors, Precision Hydration. Remember, you can take their online sweat test to get a feel for whether you're a very salty or a very heavy sweater. Like me, I'm a very salty sweater. I found out using one of their in-person sweat tests, I lose over 1,600 milligrams of sodium, which is like six times more sodium than you get in a bottle of Gatorade or something like that. So, it's really important for people like me um, that we replace all of the sodium that we're losing if we want to race well, if we want to avoid hyponatremia, and if we want to avoid getting cramps. Again, I've been a lifelong cramp sufferer, both in events and also, you know, to be honest, more worryingly and more disturbingly in the middle of the night, calf cramps that make me jump out of bed and have to stretch my foot out against the wall or cramps that happen in the swimming pool that mean I've had to get out with my my calf or my foot locked solid and since discovering precision hydration those problems have largely not entirely I'm not going to lie to you and say it's a miracle cure that solves you'll never cramp again but I'd say 90% less occurrence with me taking it it's the best product out there, I believe. It's almost tasteless. You just mix a little sachet in with your water. It's got a kind of slightly fruity, orangey flavor, and it does not taste salty. So if the last time you tried electrolytes was one of those old school um, salt tablet things that make your drink taste like seawater, forget it. Get on the Precision Hydration. You can get 15% off your first order with the code OxygenAddict15. I love it. My team loves it. Everybody who uses it raves about it. So don't be left behind. Get on it with precision hydration. Okay, first bit of news today, and it is a massive bit of news. It's so big, in fact, that I'd already edited and set the podcast to publish first thing in the morning. And I have I've just been sent a text, and I've got to squeeze this into the show. 
Kona and Taupo have been cancelled for this year. I don't know whether you're hearing it here first. It is it's nearly midnight where I am right now as I'm recording this. So I think some of our North American listeners will already have seen this on the forums. A lot of our British listeners will be already in bed. But this is from the horse's mouth from Ironman.com. Important event announcement. Based on careful consideration in accordance with numerous criteria, the state of the pandemic around the world, border and travel restrictions, athlete qualification opportunities, our mission to host a truly competitive world championship and our desire to provide our athletes and host communities with as much preparation time as possible. We have come to the unfortunate conclusion that the 2020 edition of the Ironman World Championships, rescheduled for February the 6th, 21, cannot proceed. There's considerable effort that goes into producing and qualifying and training for a world championship event. Thus, this is a decision that we've not taken lightly. We're beyond disappointed to not be hosting the Ironman World Championships for the first time in our 43-year history. We will immediately shift our full focus towards creating exceptional World Championship experiences for future editions. The event will return on October the 9th, 2021. Athletes registered will be receiving an email with further information. So there you have it. Incredibly sad news. I, I don't think it's something that many of us thought wasn't that unlikely, but... There it is. It's absolutely confirmed. And, and that, I think, at this point, puts into question the rest of the races for the rest of this 2020 season, doesn't it, really? It's incredibly disappointing. Obviously, I've got an interview here lined up with David for later on in the episode. That was recorded before this announcement where he'll talk about the races he's doing and his hopes for Kona in February, um, which is all kind of irrelevant now, really. But yeah, so I just wanted to interject this. Read it to you straight from the horse's mouth. Who knows? It might be the first that you've heard of it, but that news is up on ironman.com and I'd imagine it'll be on social media and all of the different websites by the time you, uh, by the time you hear this tomorrow morning. All right, so a few bits and bobs that we've we've noticed. First up, um, from the PTO Hub, there's some great stuff going on over there. I'd go and check it out if I was you. They've got some great things with interviews with athletes interviewing each other. We mentioned last week, um, I think, the Lucy Charles Barkley and Cam Wertham. They've released more clips of that video, and it looks like they're, they're releasing bits and bobs on a daily basis. So short chunks of these things you can watch during your coffee break. There's a, there's a great interview with um, Joe Skipper talking about his 12 hour time trial last year, where he got disqualified for taking a wrong turn when he, he would have won. And he said, he's going to go back and have another crack at it this August. So yeah, we'll look forward to seeing how Joe can, can go in that one. And, uh, and hopefully maybe even take the British record, who knows, see how he goes with that. Um, and yeah, I just really enjoyed sitting down and watching it over a coffee. So keep an eye out that the sort of three or four minutes long, they're coming out every day pretty much over at the PTO hub. That's really cool. Now, something else that I've seen in a press release, superleaguetriathlon.com sent me a little article entitled Everything You Need to Know About the SLT Arena Games. Now, I'm not sure whether this is out into the public domain or not yet, whether it's like a press-only release thing, but get this, 23rd of August... They're holding the SLT Arena Games in um, Rotterdam. 
So the idea is there's going to be a mix of in real life and virtual racing. The swim's going to happen in a in a real life Olympic pool. Uh, the bike's going to happen on Swift and the run's going to happen, I presume, on a treadmill. Um, they've teamed up with Swift for it and they're going to be racing Super League's unique triple mix format. So either swim, bike, run or bike, swim, run or run, swim, bike. So they mix them up each time. Three short, sharp races where they mix the order up and there's a very short break between each one. Names that are confirmed to be racing on the women's field they're going to have cassandra bogrand taylor spivey and rachel claimer and on the men's side there's going to be johnny brownlee richard murray and jonas scumberg and there's going to be one extra spot for a dutch rookie on the male and the female side as well so some really big names racing if you remember cassandra bogrand was leading out in slt malta and she had um she had a mechanical her rear mech ripped off um so some very quality athletes reaching each other there. So it's going to be interesting to see how they do that. 23rd of August, that's not that far away now, is it? It's only a month away as we record. So it's going to be interesting to see how they uh, how they get this up and they film it. It's going to be screened live on TV. It's also going to be on SLT's Watch Live section. And it's going to be happening on the 23rd of August from 1 p.m. to 3 p.m. Central European time. So, yeah, check it out and watch this space. It's looking like it's going to be really, really good stuff. Right. Over into Coach's Couch this week. And um, before we do that, I just want to say thanks to everyone who sent either a message on Facebook or Instagram or even some of the emails that came through following our age group stories special edition that I put out this weekend with one of our uh, team oxygen addict coach members, Laura Hillier. Um, really great feedback. It was really interesting. I had I had this feeling that people would respond really well to stories that are not just pro triathletes. And, you know, the the main bulk of the podcast is always going to be me trying to get the best pros and the biggest names on the show for interviews. But I've always, you know, I've always tried to weave in some of the age group stories along the way. And they've always been really well received. Usually, though, they've been age groupers at the very top of the game. So we've had Charlie Pennington on and we've had Tom Rigby and we've had Dan McParl and Ruth Purbrook, you know, people who have been like going to Kona, winning Kona, winning age group races. I've always thought an interesting story would be age groupers who've got really interesting stories and, you know, not necessarily absolutely winning races outright, but they've just got interesting stories of how they got into triathlon, the things that go on in the real world, how they fit the training in around the life and the kids and the jobs and the businesses. Um, and I was a bit nervous putting out the special edition show, wondering how it would be received. But I've got to say thank you again to everyone who wrote and said that they really enjoyed it because um, I think it really seems to have touched a nerve. There were so many people got in contact with me, got in contact with Laura, she tells me as well. Um, and fair play to Laura. It's a, it's a big thing to come onto a podcast and talk about your your personal life and your medical troubles that you've had and the epics that you've had trying to get through races. So I think she's done a brilliant job of sort of opening up triathlon, being more accessible. There's this, there's this image of triathletes, even age group triathletes as being supermen and superwomen who don't have any challenges and don't have any problems and can deal with everything that life throws at them. And that's true, but we deal with these things and we get through them 
by getting through them, not by the fact that we don't actually have these challenges and problems in the first place. So I just want to say thank you to Laura for agreeing to come on the show. I'm going to do some more of these shows, I think, over the summer. Um, there's obviously not a huge amount, if any, pro racing going on at the moment. So it might be a good time to get some more some more age group stories on. So, yeah, so watch this space. So Coach's Couch this week. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make this a bit of a self-indulgent one. I'm going to give some shout-outs this week to some of the athletes from our team. I've mentioned to you we've been having our weekly Zwift ride. You know, we've got the Oxygen Addict Triathlon Power Hour ride that happens on Tuesday at 7.15 p.m. that anyone can join in with. We're just in the events list, events list in Zwift. It's one of the official events. So you can just come along and train with me and train with the team, see what our sessions are like. On Thursdays, we've also been doing a mix of either team time trials or time trials. This week, what we did to mix it up, because a lot of the a lot of the members of the team have been on our, our what we call the coronavirus plan. They've got no event in the diary. We've had a mix of training that initially, you know, we were really nervous about people training at intensity, and we didn't know how this virus was going to affect the general community. So we really took the took the intensity of training down, but. Over the, I think, 18, 19 weeks since we, we kicked this plan off, we've got more and more confident that we can give our athletes intensity. And we got back to the point where it was appropriate for everyone to do a flat-out time trial come FTP test this week. And then a lot of our athletes' cases, it's the first time they've done an FTP test on the bike for since coronavirus happened back in March. So there were lots of nervous athletes. It wasn't your traditional you know, what we call the traditional winter FTP build. They've not been doing lots of hard FTP sessions. In fact, most athletes have only done FTP work for about two or three weeks in the lead up to this. So no one really knew where they were going to be, but lots of people were reporting that they were feeling really good. So what we did, we organized a meetup in Swift. We um, got everyone to submit their current FTP and their watts per kilo. And Andy, my business partner, he organized everybody into a time trail, just like in real life. We left every 10 seconds and the idea was we did it on the tempest fugit course in swift and it was as flat out as hard as you can go for 20 minutes on your own watch and then when you finish 20 minutes you sat up so we didn't race all the way to the end of the time trial um and obviously because everyone was ordered according to ftp and watts per kilo everybody around you was really similar so it was really hard to make up the 10 seconds to the athlete in front of you you were watching the athlete or two behind you trying to stop them from catching you it was absolutely brilliant we had 44 or 45 athletes um take part i think there were a couple of zwift mechanicals we'll call them along the way but of those 40 athletes who took part we had 30 people with ftp increases which is absolutely staggering when you consider that they haven't done an FTP building block. Um, 16 of those people had a 10 watt increase in their FTP or more. Five of them had a 20 watt increase in their FTP or more. And Andy added it up to be 335 watts total gain. And a few honourable mentions and shout-outs here. Steve Bridges had the biggest increase, both in watts and percentage. He had a 27-watt jump, which was 12.5% of his FTP. Matt Smith-Lilly, um, this is quite 
honestly ridiculous. His new FTP is now 376 watts, which was a 25 watt increase from where he was before. So great to see Matt getting right back stuck into his training and really getting back in shape. And he's he's shooting now for a 400 watt FTP, which is just insane. Um, Laura Hillier, again, that we mentioned from the podcast last weekend, she set another new FTP. Sarah Marsden and Natalie Duncan, um, they both led the ladies table they each had a 12 watt increase sarah jumped to 232 watts and natalie to 242 watts so people doing hard work in a group really works and i think the magic source of this the secret source is doing ftp work on your own on your own is really hard doing it in a group workout is still really hard i'm not going to lie to you but if you're on Zwift, if you've got people around you and they're all doing the same sort of workout, there's an extra bit of motivation there in the workouts. And there's an extra bit of motivation there again in the actual test itself. So absolutely fantastic for everybody who took part. I'm really, really proud of you all. You've all worked so hard and we've really come together, if anything, into feeling more of a team and more of a club and more of a band of brothers and sisters than, than ever before. Um, I even got an increase in my FTP as well. That's either hope for me, even I turned 47 yesterday and I got a jump in my FTP. So I'm only about 10 watts short of my lifetime best fitness at 47. And that's only because my teammates kick my ass every week to get on and do two hard sessions a week that I'll be honest, I probably wouldn't do at this point in my life if it wasn't for my teammates going come on coach get on here and do it with us so if you need a little bit of extra motivation first up get yourself on swift come join us on the oxygen addict triathlon podcast power hour tuesdays at 7 15 you'll absolutely love it i guarantee i've got a couple of mates who've just started getting into this mark if you're listening this is aimed at you he's a little bit nervous at the moment because he's not had a go on swift yet but he's got his pain cave set up he's going to come and join us and he's going to come and increase his fitness and his power, and he's going to get strong on the bike as well. So come join us. Can we give it a go? Um, I don't know what else to say about that, really. I'm just so proud of everybody. Great work. You've done a really good job. And if you're listening, you're not part of the team, and you're looking to get some coaching, or you're thinking about getting some coaching, there's a link in the show notes. Give it a click. You can have a chat with me or Andy about the current training that you're doing, where you are, what your week's like, how much time you've got available, how we might be able to possibly help you out. Okay, so come along and have a chat and we'll see if we can help you out. Awesome stuff. Right, before we go into the interview of the week, I want to say thank you to our new sponsors, TRR Pro Advanced Collagen. So they're over at trrnutrition.com. You can use the code OxygenAddict15 to get 15% off. These guys make a liquid collagen supplement for triathletes who are serious about sport. Um, it's aimed at everybody, all age groups. I think it's particularly great for old guys like me because I think I've mentioned that my Achilles tendons have been creaking and my knees have been creaking a bit. And I've been on this stuff now for coming up to three weeks and I think I feel better in the mornings I can't be sure of this I can't be absolutely certain it isn't a clinical trial and of course it's just n equals one but from a guy whose Achilles tendons have been incredibly sore and really difficult to walk down the stairs first thing in the morning until I get warmed up I've been feeling better and been feeling much less of that over the past three weeks and increasingly so as time goes on. Now, when they sent me a sample pack, they said, look, here's a month's worth. Take it. Report honestly what you feel and how it feels. 
Um, if it makes a difference, great. Talk about it. If it doesn't make a difference, great. Be honest about that as well. So I respect them for that. Um, they said it'll take about a month to notice the differences. So I feel like I'm starting to see the difference. And if you're struggling with you know, sore ligaments, sore tendons, if you just want to take a little bit of extra care of yourself, I think it's a great product. Each shot's got 10,000 milligrams of marine collagen in it. And they've also got stuff in like glucosamine, turmeric, ginger, vitamin C, copper, other stuff that's shown to help support joint and bone health. So it can't help. It, it can't hurt, can it? taking this stuff. Uh, I was introduced to it via Craig Alexander and Tim Don, and we did interviews with them and they're both sponsored by them. And then we did an interview with Sarah Svensk. She's um, sponsored by them as well. And I think it's a really great product. So go over and check it out. Okay. TRRnutrition.com. Use the code OXYGENETIC15 for 15% off. And here we go over to our interview of the week with David McNamee. Hi, David. Welcome back onto the podcast. How are you doing today, man? Yeah, I'm good. So, yeah, it's nice sort of right now I'm back into like a regular training routine, which after so many months of just sort of trying to maintain fitness more than anything, it's nice to sort of feel like I'm back and actually training towards a goal. Yeah, I bet. I mean, one of the interesting things about watching you during lockdown was your Instagram account is the most real thing that's out there. I can't remember who I interviewed the other day who said basically exactly that. Like, look at David McNamee's Instagram account. That's what real triathlons like. It's not these perfect photographs every day. It's being stuck and it's being doing what you can and trying to get through, you know, trying to get through. So you were, you were totally stuck in your apartment for how many weeks was it for? Seven weeks, I think. Just over, I think it was like fifty days, basically. Wow. Where you were stuck, literally indoors, and for the first two weeks, I had a treadmill, but that broke. <laughs> uh, yeah, you should you should never buy a three hundred euro treadmill, basically. <laughs> well, perhaps perhaps the guidelines there being, if you're a Kona podium finisher, you shouldn't buy a three hundred euro treadmill. Perhaps be all right for the rest of us. Yeah, God, oh, I was crazy because. Here, we literally had, like, basically like a six-hour warming. It was, like, Saturday night. So it was, like, tomorrow morning, we're going into a state of alarm, which basically means going outside, except under certain circumstances, is illegal. It's banned. Wow. So, literally, that night, we had to try and find a treadmill somewhere, and we managed to get one, like, a second-hand one. But the other thing is, like, uh, me and my partner live in a building, without an elevator and we were on like the third floor <laughs> you can imagine trying to like drag this treadmill up like three flights of stairs it was just like yeah by the end it was just like drenched in sweat and i think that was probably the hardest thing i did during lockdown to be honest <laughs> you'd be ready for the crossfit games buddy after after towing a treadmill up three flights of stairs oh no i think so like literally yeah treadmill and then yeah i spent sort of basically every day doing some skipping and stuff and yeah just sort of yeah i suppose i spent seven weeks just trying to sort of maintain some sort of fitness and more for my sort of my head more than anything to be honest yeah of course how did it how did it feel then that night when because obviously we we in Britain had more of a, a warning, if you like, because it had happened in other countries beforehand. How did it feel like hearing a message on the news on a Saturday night that it's kind of science fiction stuff, isn't it? Well, it's strange. 
It just, I suppose it was one of these things that you didn't really like process, if that makes it. It just seemed ridiculous that like the next day, if I was to put a pair of running shoes on and go for a run, I would literally be stopped by police. And I did like, I never went out once, but like, I know like the cyclists in town just didn't believe it. They right. thought, like, it's typical Spain. They say one thing, but it's not really true. So, like, a lot of cyclists literally within, like, two or 300 metres of being on the road were stopped and gave, like, a massive, like, five, 600 euro fine and told to go home. Like, that was literally, especially the first sort of three or four weeks. Because you have to realise, obviously, in Spain, we all live in flats, so it's all very, sort of, tightly packed. So there's... The police presence is greater, but it's easier to control. So literally, like, there's police in every corner almost. Wow. So were you, like, standing up on the balcony looking out and watching watching some of this unfold underneath you, people trying to go out for a ride and getting stopped by the police and sent back? Oh, I, I never saw it. Like, I never saw it, like, any myself. But we have, like, in Jonah, there's, like, a Jonah sort of Facebook group for, like, tourists that live here now like non-spaniels that live here yeah and the amount of people that like wrote in like within a day like honestly they're being serious here like i've just been stopped like literally we, we got escorted back to our flat by police this morning wow uh, and this is it like even when so obviously you could go to the supermarket to buy food but i would often get stopped by police just to ask where i was going and you need to have some evidence so for example if you went to the shop to buy something you always have to keep the receipt and you have to very much justify like why you had to go to that shop and that you are actually taking the most direct route and all that sort of stuff right wow yeah it was great like it was literally a ghost town here like you could walk to the shop and in that whole journey you see nobody apart from a police officer and then even the shops itself, the shops were dead. Yeah. Wow. So so that was seven weeks pretty much of total lockdown. All you had was presumably riding the trainer, maybe doing some swim cord work. And I saw a video of you jogging up and down outside the 30-foot balcony outside your apartment. Yeah. And this is the thing, like, I'm glad that we have a balcony because a lot of flats here don't. And yeah, I ended up doing that balcony one because I did the Ironman VR yeah. series. And this was after the treadmill book. And I was on the phone to Ironman, like, oh, I would love you to be part of it. But I think at that time, America really hadn't been affected. So they didn't really understand fully what was going on here in Europe, especially Spain. And I'm on the phone to, like, a few of like, the Ironman personnel, and they're like, oh, so, like, we understand that you can't run outside, so can you just, like, go, for, uh, it was a 10-kilometer. Like, or can you just, like, go for a very long walk? And I'm like, well, that's illegal. Like, I can't do that. Then, like, oh, well, just go to the supermarket and walk around a lot. And I'm like, well, that's illegal, too. Like, I don't think you really grasp it. Like, and they're like, no. And I think they didn't really believe me. They thought I was like, Oh, that's so funny. Literally, I can go on my balcony, and that's about as far as I can go, to be honest. 
and that that's what led to the whole 10k backwards and forwards how many how many laps was it along the balcony you ended up doing oh i can't i i gave up counting to be honest uh yeah like because i had to do a, so it was like a 3k run and then we did the bike section and the 10k run after so the 3k one was like it was quite novel it was like ah this is a good joke blah 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 and the 3k went by pretty quickly but like the, the 10k was painful just how long it took like at one point i just like sat down for a bit thinking it's just not funny anymore like this is really shit like <laughs> and that was only like i think that was like week three of the lockdown and by that point there was no end date and i remember just thinking like i don't know how much more of this i can take like this is just like on i just i just want the freedom to like go out and even just walk where I want to walk. Not even like exercise, but I just want to go out and walk somewhere that's not the supermarket, which is 200 metres away. Yeah, oh, I can believe it. And it's, um, how long was it before you get any sort of sense of when, when the lockdown would end? How long were you in that sort of, you know, we just don't know when this is ending phase for? To be honest, nothing, but we didn't. So initially it was called for two weeks. Right. And then... On the second week, they're like, no, no, we have to extend it for another two weeks. And it just kept on rolling out and rolling out. So it wasn't until the week before that we actually knew that it was ending. So, like, it goes to the point where I just, like, stopped watching the news and stuff because you had your hopes up every single week. And then, like, every week, it's like, no, no, we're extending it. And, yeah, to be honest, I just sort of... I suppose I started just like focusing on what I could actually just control. And that was just trying to like improve my biking, trying to keep some sort of general fitness and then just do sort of other things with my time, like read books and stuff. And yeah, just mm. sort of keep myself occupied. How much, how much time did you spend riding your bike during that period? What were you doing on a sort of daily or weekly basis? Uh, so we were doing like, Roughly like 20 hours a week on the turbo. Wow, okay. Uh, and that was, yeah, a mixture of just sort of riding steady, but I also did some structured workouts and then some swift racing just to keep sort of my sanity. And then, so I'd always generally do that in the morning and then in the evening I'd try and do something else like swim cords or like some skipping, some gym work, just to sort of keep some sort of like training structure. And how was it when you finally got released and you were allowed back out into the wild again? What was that first run like? Oh, it was beautiful. Like, and this is it. There was actually the first time the majority of people had been allowed out to their homes, apart from to the supermarket. So, like, Jonah's quite an active city, but mainly cycling, not for running. But literally, I think I probably there's probably like a, there's a population of a hundred thousand here. And I think, like, at least a good 20, 25,000 people were out running that morning. It was, like, chaos. <laughs> like, literally. Because it was, like, for a lot of it, and especially the children. So if you were under 16, that was roughly the first time you'd been allowed out for seven weeks. Wow. So you have to realize that the children here weren't allowed out. Not at all. Weeks. Not at all. For seven weeks. If you were under 16, you weren't allowed out. 
it's hard it's hard to imagine how kids would deal with that i've got an eight-year-old here and he goes nuts if he doesn't get out once a day you know how how what how did it affect them have you got any friends with with young kids and and talk to them i have some with children and they both said the same thing is that actually so when they were finally allowed out they were very excited but they were worried both of them they worried about their children because after a few days they realized that the children actually they didn't want to go out at all like right it was just strange like generally like both of them both of their children they're very active outdoors they want to play basketball and they were worried that, like literally they were having to force their children to go outside now because like the children were so conditioned to being indoors right that Literally, they were almost like scared to go outside. Wow, really? And there's still so much, like, there's a lot of fear still in Spain. And I think, sort of, yeah, I think that's sort of very much you can see it within the children. Is that, yeah, like, I know, like, especially one of my friends who's very worried about his child, and that the child literally is the kid that wants to be outside all the time playing basketball. But for a good couple of weeks, he was almost like forcing the child out the door. Right. It's just sort of, yeah. So I suppose, yeah, it's massively affected the children. And that's why sort of there's such a fear here that there'll be another sort of spike and we'll end up indoors again. Yeah. Well, I mean, moving on to that, have you thought sort of moving forwards, will you stay in Sharona and like obviously there's an, I think the the word expectation is the wrong word, an expectation of a second wave. But there's obviously a very real fear of that happening. And, and in terms of planning for what will happen in that instance, are you guys going to stay in Girona or have you got sort of contingency to move somewhere where it might be a little bit less? Yeah, we've thought about that. And the problem is it's difficult in that my partner has a big family and they're all live very close right. here. So, yeah, I think we would end up staying. I think I would definitely be buying a more expensive treadmill. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I've already made a contact that sort of if I do need a treadmill, I have a good treadmill that I can buy straight away. Uh, Dude, what you need is a contact with four strong fellas who will carry up oh. the stairs for you more than someone who will sell you a oh, treadmill. This, this, so that was my, so like, once the treadmill broke, we did manage to like contact like a gym and like, well, we'll sell you one, but you have to go and get it yourself. And I right. was like, God, there's no way in hell that. Yeah. Because the one that we bought was like a lightweight one and we just managed to get it up the stairs. I'm like, well, me and my partner, we can't drag like a 130 kilogram treadmill up the stairs. I need like four people. Yeah. And all you need is the police to stop you and then you're screwed. Yeah. So, yeah, I think sort of, yeah, I think if there's a second wave and I think ultimately Jonah is home and we'll just need to be a bit more prepared. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, listen, let's let's move off the, the whole coronavirus thing and let's talk a little bit about your triathlon career. First up, I wanted to ask you, your first Ironman back in 2015, Ironman UK. 
was was a win, wasn't it? It was very successful. How was that for you in terms of what was your experience of racing the first sort of very long distance race? Yeah, I think sort of 2015, it was, I raced Ironman South Africa at the start of the year, which went okay. I think I was like eighth, but that was off the base of like three or four months specific Ironman training. I didn't know you'd raced South Africa, actually. I I was under the impression that UK was your first race. You'd done South Africa before, had you? I'm back. We're back again. That's all right. We had a connection failure. So yeah, mate, I was just saying, I'd sorry. I thought that UK was your first, your first full distance race. It was actually South Africa, was it? So it was South Africa in March that year. And that went okay, but I sort of like did the classic go out too hard and blow up just because, especially in the marathon coming from the ITU, like I ran the first 10K in South Africa in 35 minutes. Oh, like, that's I a gift that keeps on giving, isn't it? <laughs> and the thing is, like, I was running along, it didn't feel hard, it felt very comfortable, and compared to ITU, it was, it was super easy. But, yeah, between 20 and 30k, it was just, it was a little bit faster than walking. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, so I learned my lessons, and then Ironman UK was, yeah, and to win that was, it was an incredible experience. It sort of gave me, Gave me the confidence that I could do well in Ironman. It was, yeah, it was one of these sort of classical, brutal British races where it's such a tough course, Bolton, and it was such shit weather, especially at the start. Was that the day it really booted down? It really, really yeah. hammered down for the first hour on the bottom, well, one of the years when that's like, happened. That was it. Literally, like, I remember getting to, like, the first sort of aid station and just like tossing my like helmet visor because like I couldn't see anymore. So I threw that, but literally, I remember, I can't remember what's the famous climb you go up? Sheep House Lane. So going up Sheep House Lane, but it's just like a river coming down against you. It was just like horrific. And at that point, I think Fraser like broken me, like he was like 15, 20 seconds up the road. But I just managed to catch him on the downhill just because technically I was better than him and just because he was, like, scared of how bad the weather was. <laughs> but, again, like, I come from the ITU background where it's just like, no, no, like, you've lost... You, you have to get yourself to the front again, no matter what. And then, yeah, it was just, like, a day of, like, me, Fraser, and then Joe Skipper just, like, battling each other out, to be honest, because every foreigner that had turned up for the race sort of within the first hour on the bike, well, they were either, like, in the back of an ambulance so I gave up to be honest <laughs> and then you went out to Kona that first year and you placed 11th in Kona didn't you on your your first trip out there so that must have that must have filled you with confidence because you were quite under the radar and to go and finish you know knocking right on the door of the top 10 in your first race there it's quite it's quite unusual to have that kind of success first race in Kona isn't it yeah and that was it was a little bit of a surprise for me. I didn't realise how well I'd be able to run in the heat. And yet, to come 11th was great, but 
I would think I was like 40 seconds away from 10th and Kona's quite cutthroat in that 10th place is $10,000 and the 11th place is nothing. So as much as it was a great experience, you end up losing like three, four thousand pounds from it. Like, so yeah. that was, I suppose it was a great experience, but it was also like a wake up call of how tough this sport is, like from a financial perspective. It's very much, the big money is not, well, there is no such thing as big money in our sport, but you can't just be relying on prize giving. Hmm. Yeah, it's tough, isn't it? It's really, it's really brutal. What's your, I mean, what's your personal opinion on what they should do about that? Do you think they should they should pay deeper at the the world championships? Uh, I think world championships. I think the sh- I think the top twenty should be paid. Mm. I feel. Uh, I feel like globally, there's too many races for professionals, so the prize money is spread too thin over too many races because like I know what's happened this year is like sort of changed the landscape but even like you usually during the summer there's like some weekends where in Europe there's like four different 70.3 professional races so for me it's very much we should cut the number of races but for those races sort of increase the depth of what the, where the money is yeah and i think that it just makes every feel better and it sort of it'll make the sport more attractive i think the problem is right now is that there's too few pros spread over too many races mm. yeah i'd agree with that for sure and i think i think that kind of also leads to the other problem of because there are sometimes not very many pros at a race you've got top end age groupers finishing in the top 10 of a race and then sort of the next step is to think why well, can turn pro and the reality for them is the difference between turning pro and actually being able to make a living at it is so difficult because like you said the, the fields are spread so thin across so many races oh no and that's the thing and look i lost a lot of money the fossey that i was professional in ironman and ironman uk because of the weather as well, I think there was only eight pro men finished it. Mm. And I think there was like four pro women finished it. And we can't have that really in our sport. Like for me, everyone in the sport gets excited about corner. And we get excited about, it's the one race of the year that people really get excited about the professional race. But we can't live off a sport that just one day a year I always think, I always think like if I just take Ironman and forget 70.3 right now, is that during the year there should only be three qualifying events for Kona, for the professionals. Right. Because you want, the thing is like, we there's never big, do you know like the big head-to-heads, like there's never ever going to be a, an Ironman race outside of Kona where like me, Patrick, Lionel, Jan, Sebi, on the same start field it just doesn't happen whereas if you had like just three qualifying events during the year you can have other Ironman events with prize money but it's a case of if you want to go to Kona here's the three races you have to pick one we want we we want the best athletes in the world 
battling it out more than once a year because you want some interest during the year. So, yeah, you want... The thing is, like, say you're like Jan Fideno. There's very few people in the world who have a chance of beating him. And he can quite easily make sure that he doesn't actually have to face any of them until Hawaii. Mm. Whereas if all of a sudden, like, you've got Lionel v. Jan twice a year, three times a year, even, that just brings a lot more excitement into the sports. Well, I think that brings us around to the PTO, doesn't it? And what they're trying to do with the, like with the Collins Cup and, and sort of the professionalization and making more of a, I like the analogy of the golf model where the top players play each other five, six, seven times a year. It would be great if we had that in triathlon, wouldn't it as well? Uh, for me, like I like the golf, but I also like, I always sort of look to our like tennis. Tennis. Yeah, the absolutely. Four majors. Yeah have the four majors and for traveling to sort of like and the things we have like great events already and historical events like I look towards like Frankfurt like Frankfurt's a great event but again everybody knows that so it's great for the Germans to be there so Jan and Sebi might do it so every other European four things well Jan and Sebi are doing it I'm not going there I'm going to go and do another race the same the same weekend. I'll go to Austria because it'll be easier and it's qualifying for Kona. Yeah. Whereas if you went, no, no, actually, Frankfurt this year has 15 slots to qualify for Kona. We want the top 15 athletes in the world, maybe not top 15, but like we don't want it to be two or three amazing athletes and then the rest average. We want great athletes to also go to Frankfurt and think, fuck it, I'm here, I can qualify for corner, I can give it my best shot at racing Jan, Sebi in Germany. And I think that's it, is that there's nothing worse when you look at like a top 10 in the professional, and the difference between like first and 10th is like an hour. Yeah. Like, it's basically like how, like, how many ten, t- tennis tournaments would you watch where literally you have like the two finalists that are close, but to get to the final, they've won six love, six love, everything. Yeah. Like this is it, is that you want there to be close battles. Do you miss that? Do you, does it frustrate you slightly that the lack of, almost a lack of ability for you to race the big names during the year? Uh, I think sort of coming from ITU and ITU, we raced each other like eight times a year. I think, one of the reasons I do well in corner is because I get excited about racing in a large, strong field. Like, it feels very much like you're, even though, like, obviously the biking's non-drafting, but you're always around people. You're always sort of battling it out. Whereas you can go to, like, an, like I take Ironman UK, an example, 2015. Like, for the first seven hours, the only other person that I saw was Fraser. Yeah, <laughs> like whereas you go to Hawaii and it's just like a battle and I think it looks a lot better in TV when there's a lot of athletes fighting to lead the race and to win and if we could somehow take that to other races throughout the year and I think with the PTO with Daytona where they've put up a lot of prize money they will attract probably the best field this year yeah so hopefully that's another event where 
it's great fun spectator to watch because you've got the top 50 guys, top 50 women in the world actually fighting it out. Are you going to be there? Are you planning to race Daytona? I plan on it. We'll see yeah. if we're like to go to America and all that. And there's so many, yeah, I suppose, if Unknowns. all is well, and yeah. I plan to be there. I think, yeah. Uh, then there's the biggest event in triathlon this year. So, yeah, I think we just need more of these events. We need sort of world-class fields at events. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Um, are you excited about the opportunity to go to something like the Collins Cup? Obviously, there's a slightly different sort of head-to-head element and the, the bringing sort of a slight change to the racing. Is that something that appeals to you? Yeah, I think I think they've still not got the format perfect. Right. Like, for me, I don't believe in our sport you should get paid before you've raced. That's my personal opinion. I think I like the idea of sort of Europe versus America versus Australia. I like that idea, and I like the idea that they've got team captains and stuff, and they're very much going for Ryder Cup sort yeah. of format there. But I feel like with the money that you're pay, paying people to appear, you should be like, well, the prize for the first team is this. The prize for the second team is this, just to make sure that you fight it out to the death no matter what. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, if you're having a bad day and there's no prize money on the line, you've already been paid, it's very easy for someone to like sort of sandbag it and just be like, well, you know, I'm, I'm going to look as if I'm trying, but really deep. There's a difference between trying and really hunting for it. Yeah. And I think if there's a lot of prize money in the line and you feel like you're letting down your team, then that's when you really hunt and that's when you'll see the best performances. Whereas it's basically all the prize monies, well, the appearance fees are paid out before the race even begins. It's just missing that little extra bit of incentive. I see. Okay. Well, listen, you mentioned you mentioned Jan Fredino a little while ago, and I know that you and he trained together quite a lot when you were first in Girona. How how fundamental was that, do you think, to helping you believe how good of an athlete you could be? I think it was important. I think I, I think when you're sort of regular training with someone who's world champion and you're being competitive with him, it gives you that confidence. I think the biggest thing I learned from Jan was that sort of, I think previously sort of in my, my Ironman training, I'd just been sort of doing that little bit too much and that I just kept on pushing and pushing it, never let my body rest. I think sort of coming from ITU to Ironman, I just thought, well, you just add more and more volume and that's how you do it. Okay. And I think that's the key thing that I learned during that period was actually he's a world champion. He's very happy with like once a week just going to the swimming pool and training in the pool and that's him done for the day. Whereas up to that point, I was very much, no, no, you want to be doing five or six hours every single day. Okay. 
because you hear about sort of, and this is the thing, you hear about people who do like the big massive 40, 45 hour training weeks and stuff and all this epic shit. But you don't want to be the person bragging on social media that you went for a 5k swim and just sat around for the rest of the day. Yeah, exactly. But that's what it takes. It takes the ability to, and the confidence to go, my body needs this once a week, take the foot off the gas and let it recover. And that's it. And I think by doing that, it's allowed me to sort of increase the intensity in the other days. Yeah. So yeah, I think that was sort of the biggest lesson. Uh, yeah, because before I started training with Yana, obviously I'd been like 11th in corner. I just came third at the African Championships behind Ben Hoffman. And I was having good performances by the training. I'd, it was almost as if the training, I would just train and train and train until I saw my body sort of got too tired to where I just had to take days off. And then I'd just get back on the wagon and train, train, train again until my body just said no more. Just, yeah, and I suppose that was it. Fundamentally, it was just a lack of confidence. Do you still train with Jan? Uh, no. So, yeah, unfortunately not. Uh, yeah, after I came to Southern Hawaii the first time, he just sort of, yeah, I suppose that's it. So it was just a case of, sorry, David. Like, you're now a threat. Do you think that's what it was? It was, uh, it, yeah, you, it you was, proved like, you could be really competitive with him and he and he didn't want to train had, with you? We had the conversation, so yes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, like, I can understand it. Uh, for me, it was very sad, like, because I really enjoyed training with Jan and stuff. And, yeah, I suppose for me it was disappointing. But, yeah, obviously, I learned a lot and... Yeah, I still sort of the following year was back in the podium. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so you've had two podiums at Kona, two third places. Obviously, our eyes were on you from a UK point of view for the, the podium again in 2019 and, you know, hopefully the top step and certainly to be pushing Jan and, um, well, and everybody really. And it, it didn't happen for you in, in terms of your body. You were really sick, weren't you, come race day? Yeah, so I got... So again, I arrived in Hawaii in better shape than I had in the previous two years. And the first week went perfect in Hawaii. I always go two weeks before. And then, yeah, Monday and race week. I had I, I remember waking up. And usually race week, you wake up, you're full of energy, you're excited. But I just, like, woke up and just felt flat. I just... But at that point, I wasn't too worried. And then... I had a, I had like a brick session that day, like a short brick session. So I was like an hour on the bike with like two by 10 minutes at race pace and then an eight kilometer runoff with the first four kilometers at race pace. So like the bike again just felt like flat. It wasn't awful. It wasn't good. It just felt flat. But then, yeah, the run just, yeah, it was just like awful from the start. Like it, I remember running along, it was on the Queen K, we did it. And within like 500 metres, I was like, something's wrong here. And I was going at the correct pace, but I wasn't feeling easy. And then then all of a sudden, I stopped like shaking. I got like shivers. 
So I'm like running along, it's like 35 degrees, 80% humidity, and I'm like, I'm cold. Like, I'm like I'm at the point, like, I'm cold. Wow. Like, I'm just, like, shaking. Yeah. And then I was there with my coach, and so he was like, oh, stop. And I, I sat, and, like, there's, like, a barrier at the side of the road, and I'm sat in the barrier, and I'm just, like, shaking. I'm like, what the hell's going on here? And then, yeah, I got back to, like, the car. And then, yeah, like, the rest of the day just feeling like shit. And then the next day just waking up and feeling like, awful. And that was sort of the Tuesday morning. And you spend the rest of the week just sort of, like, praying that you'll get better. And just, like, literally I didn't really do anything apart from sit around. and You were just properly of- ill for four or five days before the race. Yeah, and the thing is, like, the day before the race, I started feeling better again. But I just, like, race day, I just didn't have anything. Like, I got, like, halfway through the swim, and I was just hungry. Like, I just needed to eat halfway through the swim. I was like, (laughs) what the hell is going on? (laughs) Oh, mate, what a nightmare. And then, yeah, I got into the bike and just had, like, no power. Like, I was dropped. Before we even got up into the Queen K, after, like, 10 kilometers, I was, like, out the back. And, like, to be honest, I would have stopped then, but sort of, you, it was just the embarrassment that kept me going, to be honest. And, yeah, I got to, like, 50Ks and stopped just before I went up to high V and stuff because physically and mentally, I don't think I wouldn't have been able to finish the bike course. I was just broken. Wow. So that, that's obviously tremendously disappointing after you've you've set your whole you know you set your whole year up around that and i know you had you had some bad luck out in roth as well didn't you where you punctured and i think you had from memory was it a 241 you ran in roth so you ran yourself back into fifth yeah yeah so i ran a two i had a great run in roth had a great swim and yeah it was just i punctured in the bike and i managed to sort of get the co2 sort of in but not perfect and there's still a bit of leakage because it was tubeless and it just the gap the hole just hadn't sealed properly yeah and then yeah i had like 90 k's left and just riding along in sort of like a flat a tire that's getting flatter and flatter and then in Roth, there's like a bike mechanic every 30 kilometers and just having to stop at every bike mechanic to like pump more air into the tire just so i could get to the next sort of station oh what a nightmare what the hell is going on here? And yeah, like every time you get into a routine, like into a rhythm, and then you'd have to stop again and just, yeah. It was one of these things where like, yeah, I suppose just frustrating, especially I was there in great shape again and I ran exceptionally well. I swam very well and yeah. I look at 2019 as sort of a year where... I was in good shape, but never actually delivered on it. So here's the big question then. You you had that scorching run in Roth. You were obviously in excellent shape then. If things had gone to plan for you in Kona, how competitive do you think you could have been that day, given the performances that the, the top athletes put out that day? Uh, I wouldn't have won it. I'm not going to sit here and say I would have won. I wouldn't have. Uh, to be honest, I think I'd have been between third and fifth, third or sixth. If I had a good race, 
Because again, I was in better shape my two previous podium performances, but every year the standard is increasing. And last year my biking still wasn't in the shape to win the event. Like ultimately, I'm yeah. I'm not gonna sit here and say, Oh, if I'd been healthy, I'd have been smashing at the front. It just wouldn't have happened. I'd have probably got off the bike sort of sort of like third package with like Ben Hoffman and stuff who came fourth and me and Ben would have had a running race to see how far we'd have came up the field right uh, so yeah so I suppose that's it it's like every year I just need to keep improving the biking and in terms of the biking I've noticed you've you've switched recently from the P5X to the, the P5 disc what was behind that move uh, so actually now I'm back to, so my two podiums, I was in P5X and then last year I went P5 and now I went back to the P, the new PX. Okay. So the P5X, I don't think they no longer, they don't make it anymore, uh, but they had the P3X last year. Uh, I suppose sort of like the p 5 disc was lighter and stuff and it's a super aggressive aerodynamic bike and I thought that was sort of something that could help me out but yeah I suppose having been on it for a year I think there's one thing about aerodynamics but it's also about being aerodynamic comfortable and comfortable enough to like produce power for 180k's yeah and I'd go to the wind tunnel and to the track and on the P5 disc, I was a little bit more aerodynamic. But there's a big difference between holding position for five minutes than four hours. And I think that was sort of my lesson last year. And I'm back in the PX now. And, yeah, it's very much like the P5X, just lighter. Yeah. And, yeah, for me, the main thing is just super comfortable. I'm happy to ride it for, like, four or five hours that's the big thing, isn't it? You've got to be comfortable for that distance. Oh, yeah, very much. And I think sort of some people naturally adapt to time trial position and just look like they're born to it, whereas I've always sort of struggled. And, yeah, I sort of, that's one of my limitations, and I need to adapt around it, and the PX allows me to do it, I think. Okay, cool. All right, man, to finish, and we've got some listener questions for you, if that's okay. Rob Waite yeah, says, what's your favorite swim, run, and bike sessions? Oh, swim. Swim, if I'm in very good shape, I always have like a test set of like eight 400s on 520. Okay. Trying to like, and that's like sort of, it's a session I either love or I hate, depending on the performance. <laughs> So <laughs> I can imagine. I'm in very good shape is like that's like the one thing that gives me like like great confidence is eight four hundred is on five twenty and if all of eight or like four fifty five then that just sort of yeah it's on that's on I'm good to go uh, biking I love my hill reps like biking and running I love hill reps I think sort of yeah I think sort of that all comes back to being triathlon i took up when i was in sterling up in scotland which especially for running it's just like hills after hills so for biking and running i just love 
hills, and I think for Ironman, it's very important in the strength. So biking, again, sort of anywhere between like four to ten minutes or four to fifteen minutes of like hill reps, where I try and keep a cadence of between sixty and seventy, and ride just a little bit below my threshold. Okay, so you, so you're essentially doing those. Will you be doing the Monero position? No, so those ones I've not, just because at sixty seven to cadence going up a incline, unpleasant enough like, without bringing the aero position into it. At the strength wise, I'd probably fall off the bike. I'm the only <laughs> the only athlete I've ever seen being able to do sort of that type of session in the aero bars is Terenzi Bazzoni. Okay, so like. I remember, like, so at one point, me, Jan, and Terenzo were training together, and we did, like, sessions like this, and, like, me and Jan would be going up just sort of in the base bar, and, like, Terenzo would be next to, next to us in, like, the aero position, and, like, both of us thinking, how the hell does he do that? <laughs> like, he is, like, strength-wise, Terenzo's the strongest cyclist I've ever seen. Really? Incredible. Like, when he is on, like, his biking power is just incredible. Awesome, man. Cool. All right, next question. Andy Heap says, do you ever get to tag along with pro cyclists or teams in Girona? Uh, I've never really actively pursued it, to be honest. Uh, I have a few mates that ride post professionally, so I ride with them every so often. Yeah. Uh, yeah, one of my best friends is the director for NTT Cycling, so I ride with him, and then, yeah, I ride with a few mates who ride sort of for some of the top sort of Basque amateur teams. They're like youngsters, so... Okay. Yeah, I don't go about hoping to ride with professional cyclists, mainly because they're quite boring, to be honest. <laughs> like, I have a few mates who are cyclists, and every so often I'll ride with them, but apart from them, like, yeah, every time I meet a cyclist, it's just... They're a bit boring, to be honest. <laughs> All right, Maria Milton says, um, how is your Catalan? Catalan's okay. So my partner's family. So here, Catalan is very much the number one language. Yeah. So with my partner's family, they generally over only ever speak in Catalan. Spanish is very, it's not difficult for, well, for the grandma it's difficult because she yeah. just hasn't spoken for 50 years. So I can understand Catalan mainly, but with my partner's family, I always respond in Spanish because I'm just a lot more comfortable speaking Spanish to them than, they know I understand when they speak to me in Catalan, but I'm just uncomfortable to speak back to them in Catalan. Okay. So, yeah, my Catalan's okay i can understand i can read the newspapers and stuff and but to have a conversation i always sort of generally respond in spanish even if i understand the question in catalan got you and um the last question from laura hillier is can she come for a holiday in girona please well everybody can come they can come and stay with me i think my partner would be a bit pissed off <laughs> Oh, brilliant, mate. Well, listen, that seems like a pretty decent place to leave it. Last thing, what are your plans for the rest of the season if if it turns out you get to do some racing and you can travel? Uh, so my plan is, I'm thinking about doing Ironman Nice. Okay. So I've always wanted to do it because it's such a hard bike course and 
for me, I really like racing nowadays in Spain and France because even though I'm not the best cyclist, I love an honest, fair race. And Hawaii is a fair race because it's so well marshaled. But you go to a lot of these sort of races around Europe and there's so much cheating and bollocks that goes on with regards to drafting, but also you'll see like people just like intentionally try and speak to like the motorbikes just so they slow down and like they're like oh do you have a question and it's just bullshit just to sort of draft for a while so i love sort of in spain and france because outside of ironman barcelona they all have like really super tough bike courses and i remember like speaking to like the guy who designs the spanish courses and he said look my only aim is to get a mountain within the first 10 kilometers (laughs) Because I'm sick fed up. So like that's one of the reasons I want to go to Nice is that I do love climbing, but I just it's just such an honest, brutal race by the looks of it. Yeah, it really is, man. It's sort of like yeah, like it was like Bolton. I loved the Bolton race because it was just honest. Yeah. And for me that's sort of what Iron Man's about. The Nice course is great because you just from the you know after the first 5k down the promenade you're just in the wilds you're up into the mountains and there's nobody around for the whole 180k there's one little out and back section where you pass the riders but it's just like being in the middle of you know the national forest essentially you love it yeah man. oh no so i think so me and my so it's only a five hour drive away so i plan to go the next week just to see the course to be honest nice good get uh, down and see so, it yeah so I just love those types of courses. I loved doing Lanzarote a couple of years ago. Like, I just love those sort of honest, hard courses where yeah. very much... It's just fair and honest racing. It's very much... Those are the courses that really push you to the limit. Yeah, it's you and nature and the elements more than it is yeah. against tactics. Oh, yeah, and that's the thing. And, like, I hate... I suppose that's it. I hate going to races where... You never know how fair the pro race will be, to be honest. Like, and the thing is, it's not always the front of the race. Like, but every so often, like, you get caught by a pack of like six people that have literally been doing like chain gang. That's that must be extremely frustrating for you. Uh, it is. And that's why, like, that's a part of the reason I really like Hawaii is that it's so well marshaled. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, like, this is the thing is that there are people that will try and cheat in our sport, sadly. Uh, so, yeah. And it's not – the thing is, it's not generally the people right at the front of the race. But there is nothing more frustrating than, say, like, say it's a 90K and you – it's an hour and back, and you get to forty-five k turn point, and you're going back now, and you see like a pack of ten, and the guy in the front smashing himself, but literally like the people like sat like five meters behind him, and like I remember racing Barcelona seventy point three last year, and that's a brutally hard course, but there is like sections of like hour and back which is flat, and I'm leading the race, and I come back, and Bart Arnott's he's catching me and like Bart's an honest racer so he's second at the front of the group but he's got like three people behind him literally like two meters apart and he's pissed off and screaming at them and they just like shrug their shoulders yeah and it's just like 
Dude, and thankfully Bart ended up winning the race and I was second. But if any of those other three boys had sort of won it, I'd have been pissed. Yeah, and understandably so. And the thing is, it's like people that, like, before the race are very nice and stuff, and after the race, it's like, oh, well, that's racing. And you're like, dude, it's not. It's like, what what, what are you doing? Have some integrity. Yeah. Like, Do you want to name like, and shame them on the podcast? No, no, no. no. I'm, like, <laughs> I'm not the strongest biker. Like, but at least, like, I'm honest. Like, yeah, this is it. you ride with integrity. It's, it's like this, that, like... Even if you're on the strongest cyclist, doesn't mean you can draft. It doesn't mean that you can sort of like try and cheat. And this is the thing: like a lot of Ironman racing at the professional level, at age group level, it's about sort of self-marshalling yourself. There's not a thousand motorbikes out there marshalling. Thankfully, in Hawaii, there's a lot, but a lot of it is down to the athletes themselves. And like, it's just like, yeah. It's just, yeah, some of the stuff you see over the years is just crazy. <laughs> All right, man. Well, listen, we better let you go. Thank you very much for your time, buddy. It's great to catch up with you again, and I hope you have a fantastic rest of the season. Perfect. Cheers, Rob. Great to get a chance to catch up with David. I've always had an awful lot of time for him. I think he's a he's a fantastic, honest, hardworking athlete. And um, I love the way he ends there talking about searching out those hard, honest courses because he hates drafting and he hates the sort of the professionality of, of some people sort of riding to the limit of the enforcement of the rules rather than actually ride into the spirit of the rules being, you know, actually ride not drafting rather than ride to not get caught drafting. I think he's a, a quality athlete and I really hope we get to see him standing on the top step of Kona and I think we will before too long as well. That pretty much brings us guys to the end of this week's show. I hope you've enjoyed it. As always, I look forward to hearing comments on Twitter. We're at OA Podcast on there or over on Facebook or we're at Oxygen Addict Triathlon Podcast or the same on Instagram, Oxygen Addict Triathlon Podcast. Um, thank you for all your comments over the last week or so. Loved hearing the comments about the Laura Hillier age group interview. It seems like that went down really well with our audience and people have found that really inspirational. So we'll definitely be lining up a few more age group stories over the coming months for you. Um, and just before we wrap it up, we've got some discounts for you from our sponsors and supporters. First up, Precision Hydration. You can use the code OxygenAddict15 for 15% off your first electrolyte order at trrnutrition.com. Use the code OxygenAddict15 for 15% off their pro advanced collagen supplements. At Thrive.co, you can use the code OxygenAddict10 for 10% off all home blood test subscriptions. And if you're interested in finding out more about triathlon coaching, give us a shout over at teamoxygenetic.com there's a link in the show notes there you can click to book a call with me or one of the team to talk about your coaching needs and remember there's links in the show notes for all of those sponsors so you don't have to remember them just go to the show notes in your phone you can click it and it'll take you direct to the offer um until then have a great safe training racing week i'm coach rob Wilby, and you've been listening to the oxygenetic triathlon podcast see ya